Welcome to the Mastering the Game of Life podcast. In this podcast, there'll be insights around three key areas to mastering the game of life. Purpose, prosperity, philanthropy. Your host, Paul Lowe, the third sector mentor, is the founder of Hearts Global CIC, which along with many other of his charitable commitments, has been responsible for positively impacting thousands of people's lives, particularly young people from disadvantaged communities. Author of Mastering the Game of Life, From Pain to Purpose, and Speaking from Our Hearts books. Introducing your host, Paul Lowe. Hi, welcome. It's Paul here. Many thanks for listening into this Mastering the Game of Life podcast, where I'd like to start, as ever, by asking a very simple question. Values and rules. Is this VAR supporting your goals? With the VAR system being used in the recent World Cup, it seemed topical to flag up the same review principle to see if our own goals are being achieved. So let me start the ball rolling by recalling an event in my life way back in 1980 when I embarked upon my goal of service and more specifically joining the Royal Marines. At the time I was stuck in a factory and couldn't cope with the tedious monotony of working like a robot in one space all day. It reminded me of all the years I'd been confined to my bedroom as a child under the barbaric control of my stepfather. I subsequently needed freedom and variety in life, and this certainly wasn't it. Aware that my life was spiralling out of control, and because I felt I needed some real focus, I made an application to join the Royal Marines, aged 19, and at the same time, I was offered a job with the GPO as a cable jointer. I was so confused about my identity, though. Realising the facade I was presenting to the outside world was a massive lie. Conversely, I also knew that I had an immense strength physically and mentally and I certainly had a deep sense of purpose to serve and protect. Although at heart I was a naturally caring, sensitive type of person, I was becoming ever aware that this fitted well within the true warrior inside of me. I was also someone that wanted to fight for others those that couldn't fight for themselves, rationalising this as the legacy of my early unjust challenges. In my mind, the Royal Marines was the perfect answer, and after undergoing rigorous testing, I was offered the chance to join this elite fighting corps. It felt so right for me, and I knew it was time to remove my mask. A few months before this, though, I started courting a beautiful soul called Lynn. She adored me and despite my alcohol dependency, she stood by me through thick and thin. Her attractive looks with blonde hair and piercing blue eyes accompanied an ever-smiling face, reflecting a well-balanced outlook on life and certainly a robustly stable influence in my extremely erotic and volatile world. She served as a constant uplift to me in my black negative phases of life her positive personality reinforcing the inspiring experience. Because of my underlying issues, though, I began to feel as if I wasn't worthy of such a gift and harshly sabotaged everything we had together. I don't deserve you, I constantly declare to her, not realising that this only served to plant seeds of doubt in her mind. This self-undermining belief began to permeate her trust in me. The inevitable split up occurred and the result was I predictably just hit the bottle even harder. The pattern was all too familiar 
as I continued on my self-destructing downward spiral. My all-or-nothing mindset was great when I was on a dry run and working towards achieving a positive goal, but totally destructive when I was on a drinking binge. In effect, I was living a polarised black and white existence, with darkness becoming ever more frequent. I started to refer to my drinking as the black part of my life, and abstinence reflected the white. Either way, I instinctively knew I had to sort this madness out. I was missing Lynn like crazy, so I had a creative and ingenious plan to get her back, or so I thought at the time. When I next came off the drink, at the end of one of my self-imposed stints, I would take the job at the GPO short term, get back with Lynn, and if I was offered a post with the Royal Marines, the two of us would then start a new life in Devon. Ironic how music has been a prominent part in my life, as meatloaf's two out of three ain't bad constantly propounded in my tortured mind at the time. Two out of three. Firstly, I did take the GPO job. Secondly, I was offered a place in Limpston, Devon with the Royal Marines as a recruit. And thirdly, I didn't manage to get back with Lynn. I'd broken her heart and she was never ever going to trust me again. Due to my emotionally erratic upbringing, I had developed a rule that meant one of my values, love, would only be met by me being shown love. Words were just not enough. This became the catalyst for my offer to achieve my service goal being withdrawn by the Royal Marines. Because I had hoped to get back with Lynn, I tried to store my entry date into the Marines, not being aware at the time that you only get one chance with this elite corps. And as a result, I ended up staying with the GPO. At this point, I'd like to introduce John Batterby, the youngest serviceman to serve in the Falklands War, who also had the same goal of service, the same value of love, but had a different rule about his love value being met. This different rule resulted in producing a completely different outcome and paths for each of us. So, John, can you start by giving us a little bit of an insight into your early days and your upbringing before progressing onto your fascinating journey from the Falklands to fitness. Certainly, Paul. Um, I was born in 1965 in Sheffield. Uh, my, mo- my mom and dad, my dad was a self-employed painter and decorator. My mom was a stay-at-home mum, and she was there all the time for us. She looked after us. She loved us. My dad worked hard, and uh, we got three holidays a year with his work. And whatever I wanted to do, they would always push me and promote me into doing it, whether it was playing football, playing rugby, any goals at all in life. And when I was at home with my mom a lot of the time, she would always tell me about her dad. And a dad who I never met who happened, he passed away when my mom was nine and he was an ex-captain in the Coldstream Guards. So from a very early age, my ambition was to become a serviceman. Didn't care which service it was. I just wanted to be a serviceman and be like my grandparent, my granddad, who I'd never met. Anyway, December 1979, I was never academic. It was coming to do our O-levels and CSEs. I got a few, but I, was, I wasn't good enough to go out into Civvy Street and get a decent job. So my mum said, right, we're going to go down the careers office and we're going to have a look and go into the services. So my mum took me down to the services in Sheffield and uh, I passed the test for the Royal Navy. That was December 1979. 
and everyone was waiting. So it's difficult to get in, you know, you've got one chance, you're not sure whether you'll do it. Well, it happened April that following year. I got a message, I got a message and a letter and a telephone call from the careers office saying I'd passed all my tests and I was to go into the Navy on June the 1st. So June the 1st, my mum and dad were so proud. They took me down to the railway station at Sheffield. They put me on the train and then I set off to Plymouth. When I arrived at Plymouth, I was greeted by the military police. They put me in a van and took me to HMS Rally where I did my basic training. And I actually joined as a chef. And um, I did my basic training. I then went up to Kent to do my chef's training, which we got, we got through. I then got posted out into the fleet and I went to a base called HMS Cochrane, which was a, a, a shore base in Scotland. Anyway, one weekend there was a big Royal Naval ship came in and they were there for the weekend before they were, they were sailing off to do uh, what we called Spring Train 1982, which was a military exercise around Gibraltar and in the Mediterranean. On the Monday morning, one of the chefs from the ship never made it back to the ship. So my boss, my chief cook, said to me, young man, you're going on the ship for 10 days. It's experience for you and you can learn your trade training on a ship. So off I went. I joined the boat. We sailed to Gibraltar. I was on it for less than eight days and we went to war. Argentina invaded the Falklands and I thought, well, I'm only 16. They'll take me off but they didn't have time to take me off. So I went to the Falklands war. Never thought anything of it. You know, I was a young man. It was all a new experience for me. I was very naive in the way of the world. But when I came back, we all came back to a real hero's welcome. It was fantastic. And I thought, this is my life as a serviceman. I want to do my full time. Because a lot of people at the time after the Falklands were leaving through stress, mental problems, and I thought, no, I'm going to stick at it. My mom was always there. My dad was always there pushing me into, you know, do what you want to do. We'll back you at whatever you do. But they gave me so much love toward, towards me and what I was doing. So I said, no, I'm going to stay in. But I don't want to stay as a, as a chef. So in 1985, I then uh, went to my boss at the time. I was down at the air station called Rose in Cornwall. And I said, I want to become a, a diver, a bomb disposal diver. And he just looked at me and he laughed and he went, cooks don't become bomb disposal divers you know you it doesn't happen I said well I want to do it he said well you can have it we'll put you in a request in and we'll see what happens I rung my mum and dad that evening and they said John you go for it doesn't matter if you pass or you fail we're proud of you I went down to Portsmouth about two months later and I passed my aptitude then so on I went on and became a clearance diver in bomb disposal as the years passed, I always wanted to further myself, which my mum and dad were always backing me up and doing. I then did my Green Beret. I then be, went into maritime counter-terrorism. And by the end of my career, after 25 years, I left as a uh, senior rank, an NCO, senior rank officer, and came into Spain. I came back for, came into Spain. I left the military, time done. And uh, I thought, right, I want to do something different. And I wanted to become a personal trainer. I'd already done my training in the military as a personal trainer. And I thought, well, I need to refresh myself because things change. So I did my personal training and that was ooh, nearly 10 years ago now. Once again, by now, my mum and dad had emigrated to New Zealand. But they backed me up and said, you do it, John, whatever you do, you know, we're going to give you everything, all the support you need. And that's uh, where I've got to today. 
Excellent. Thank you, John. Thank you for sharing that. And I know um, John's actually my personal trainer in Spain and uh, some would say he's still letting a few bombs off when he trains me, but that's another time, another place. Um, the point where I thought this would make such a, an excellent interview was from an early age, both John and myself, um, although from different cities, we both shared that service goal. Uh, we both had love as a strong value in our lives. What was completely different, though, was the rule around love. Because John's security and certainty of his upbringing within his family environment, he didn't need that constantly to be shown. He'd had years of that. He perhaps just needed to be told it every now and again. What I needed was my most exactly the opposite. Because of my precarious upbringing, I needed to be shown. I needed that all the time. I craved it. And so when I split up with Lynn, I went in search of winning her back because just to be told that I was loved was not enough. And obviously putting the Royal Marines on hold while I did that um, cost me my place there. And the rest, as they say, is history. So hopefully do a, another interview, interview with John another time because he's got some fantastic stories to tell about his military career. And I think it's fair to say that uh, obviously he's restricted as to what he can and can't say under the Official Secrets Act because of the uh, the level he served at. But as I say, that's another time, another place. But I just want to flip over a moment um, and have a look at how Gandhi textualizes values and how they sit within our lives. Because we've spent, you know, past, past words, thoughts, actions, habits, habits, how do they all fit together? And Gandhi contextualizes it thus. Your beliefs become your thoughts. Your thoughts become your words. Your words become your actions. Your actions become your habits. Your habits become your values. And your values become your destiny. So it's interesting now to see that we can start off with a belief and that will take us ultimately to where our destiny is. It may also be beneficial to be aware that we have moving towards values based on what's most important in our lives, including some of the feelings that are most important for us to experience. We also have moving away from values, things that we would do most to avoid in our lives, including some of the feelings that are most important to, for us to avoid in our lives. It's not unusual for there to be conflict between these two diverse value sets. For example, somebody may desperately crave love as a moving towards value, but never get anywhere due to their moving away value of rejection. So they'll play safe. So let me present a question. How do your values influence your life? To help you, I offer a, six, a simple six stage process. One, think of a positive moving towards value, could be love for example, that you want to experience on a regular basis. Two, think of a negative moving away value, could be rejection for example, that you really want to avoid feeling. Three, ask yourself, is there any conflict here? If not, then simply focus on what you want, ensuring your values are aligned with your goals. Four, become aware of your rules around achieving that value. Five, is this rule making your value easy or hard to attain? 
And six, if it's making it hard, you now have the awareness to know why. So you simply change that rule. So in the context of the example that I've gave you about my past, I, what I needed to have done with hindsight is actually change my rule. And I didn't need to be showed. That was a feeling I had deep inside because I didn't have the awareness to, to believe in anything else. So what if my rule about love had been like John's? Surely my life of service would have taken a completely different path to, to the one which subsequently emerged. What about you? Do you have self-imposed rules that are challenging your positive values and ultimately preventing your goals being achieved? If so, why not have a look at your own VAR? It may offer a, bit, a better result and towards a different goal. Drop me a line at paul at paullowhearts.com with any thoughts or questions you may have. And as ever, I'll be more than happy to respond. Alternatively, check out my website at paullowhearts.com or any of my social media feeds. Thank you so much for listening to the Mastering of Game of Life podcast. And I hope you've got something useful out of it. And remember, until the next time, Mastering Life starts by embracing our hearts. Thanks for listening to the Mastering the Game of Life podcast. Drop a line to paul at paullowhearts.com with any thoughts or questions you may have, and he'll be more than happy to respond. Alternatively, check out Paul's website at paullowhearts.com or any of his social media feeds under the same name. Remember, mastering life starts by embracing our hearts.